0: Hello, hello, welcome to Dismantling Injustice, the podcast of <coughs> Brooklyn Community Bail Fund. I'm Carl Hamid Lipscomb, and I am here with our producer and creator, Saleh Israel. And um, as always, uh, this podcast, we demystify the criminal and immigration legal systems um, for our listeners with the aim of informing the public and advancing policy change. Today is, um, you know, today we have a really special guest. Um, we've talked about this a few times on this podcast, um, the issue of bail reform and pretrial trial detention. Um, uh, a few weeks ago when we had um, my colleague Zoe on the podcast, we talked about the bail reform um, laws that passed back in 2019, but we didn't really get a chance to drill into it. And so we are going to be doing that today. Today, we're joined by Mike Rempel, um, the Director of Jail Reform at the Center for Court Innovation, where he oversees planning and research related to reducing incarceration in New York. Um, he's been with um, the Center for Court Innovation um, innovation for about 16 years. Um, prior to his current position, he was a research director and he has also served on the staff of the independent commission on New York city, criminal justice and incarceration reform, also known as the Littman commission. Um, Mike has a very long bio, and I'm not going to get into it, but I can just tell you he has a long history in the field, primarily as a researcher, but as a researcher that's really committed to using data and evidence to shape public policy, uh, which is why I'm happy that he's joined us this afternoon. Um I've known of Mike's work for a few years now. Um I first came across it when I worked at Arnold Ventures, um, which uh, supports the Center for Court Innovation. Um but, uh, that all of that being said, welcome Mike. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks. It's good to meet Wendy, Carl. Uh
0: great. I'm gonna get right into us, into it. Um, Bail reform has, it's, you know, it's sort of been um, an adventure over the last three years. Um, You know, like, I've referred to it as like a choose your own adventure uh, story of like a policy reform. Um, You know, other people um, have joked that it's more like a series of unfortunate events. But um, I was hoping that you could tell us The story of New York's bail laws over the last three years or so, Um, and particularly what was the state of our law, the bail law pre 2019, what happened in 2019, and what's happened since those initial reforms passed um, back in 2019?
1: Sure. So, pre 2019, the bail laws essentially gave judges three things they could, an arraignment. Or later in a case with someone during the pretrial period. They could release the person on their own recognizance, which usually means without any conditions. They could be the order of protection, but otherwise no other conditions. They could set bail, which in practice, because most people can't afford bail, means more often than not that they'll spend some time in pretrial detention. Or they could simply remand the individual directly to pretrial detention if it's a felony. So those are our three options. Then some. Counties in the state might have a fourth option, which is supervised release. So you could think of that as in between release on recognizance or ROR and bail. The individual has to assist in supervision, so there are conditions, but they're not they're not detained. So that's a fourth option. It's not required by law. Some counties have it, some don't. In New York City, New York had it from twenty sixteen to twenty nineteen, but not for all cases, only misdemeanor is nonviolent start. Those are our three options. That's where the law stood, and then judges would choose these conditions based on what they based on people's likelihood of attending court, essentially. And, and this is very really unique in New York. Almost every other state allows you to really consider two kinds of things in making a pretrial condition: someone's likelihood of returning to court. So that's the same as New York. But then a second criterion, which is someone's risk public safety in the pre-trial period. That was not allowed pre-19. So that's pre-19. So now, now we have pre-2019. So now we have post-2019. So April 2019 bail passed. It actually went into effect January 2020. So bail reform did one thing that's very highly publicized and a bunch of other things that are not very well publicized. The thing that's highly publicized is that the law eliminated bail for nearly all misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies. So now that option is Remove. removed. And, and for that matter it eliminated demands as well. So both of those options are removed. are removed. What's not publicized is that while we had a removal of one type of option in certain cases, we actually had an addition of other options. So bail form also made supervised release. That fourth option sometimes used, sometimes not available in some counties, not available in other counties, not available for all charges. So the law made that universally available to all defendants in the state and to all judges in the state as an option they could use regardless of the charge. So that's the first not well-publicized thing the law did. Another not well-publicized thing the law did is establish a new presumption of release, which had not previously existed before the reforms, Judges could make a pretrial decision based on someone's likelihood of court attendance, but there really wasn't any presumption of where they had to start. Bail reform said that judges have to release on the content unless there's a risk of flight, and the law uses the word "demonstrated." It quite has to be demonstrated. There has to be some evidence supporting that this individual really might credibly. Three, the jurisdiction or you have to set release on the consciousness. That didn't exist before in the law. And then as an ancillary to that, if you pass this first risk of flight threshold, then you still, even if the case is one of those violent felonies that remain eligible for bail, you can't then jump to bail. You have to go through your conditions one at a time and set the one that is the least restrictive that can assure someone's return to court. So you consider, you know, you consider ROR. Well, ROR maybe be the amount court that you might lose. Would that suffice to get this individual to return to court? Okay, maybe not. Now we can look at supervised release. Would that suffice? Okay, maybe not. Now you can start to look at money bail. So um, presumption of ROR and to restrictive condition once you exceed that threshold. Another thing that maybe. Semi-publicized, but not completely well-publicized. bail reform said that when judges do set bail, in the violent felony cases that we remain eligible for it, they have to take people's ability to pay into account. And the law uses the words take individual financial circumstances into account and says that the bail cannot pose a quote undue hardship. And then to help make bail more affordable, the law says that judges must set a more affordable form of bail, which basically means something called a partially secured bond or something called an unsecured bond. So a partially secured bond just means bail is set at some amount, but the individual has to pay 10% or less of it up front. They can pay the rest only if the defendant is gone. I and with an unsecured bond, nothing has to be paid up front, but they still are responsible for the balance. It's something that's gone. So that's, that's bail reform. And then the final part of the story is in 2020. So in April 2020, bail reforms were amended. And then those amendments went into effect July 2020. And the main effect of the amendment was to, uh, so to speak, partially roll back the reforms by making more cases eligible for bail once again. So more nonviolent felonies were made eligible for bail. And then in particular... Although there were a dozen provisions in these so-called rollback amendments, two provisions have shown to be very significant. One involves burglary in the second degree, which is technically in the law called a violent felony, but there aren't really any violent elements in the actual provision. And so the rollback said that judges could set their own someone if there was a burglary to charge, and the individual was unlawfully in a quote-unquote living area. Um, so that's burglary in the second degree. It was one of two violent felonies, one of two technical violent felonies that had not been kept bail eligible initially, but now this was made bail eligible. And then the second provision is that a judge could set bail if the current case and a case involves, quote unquote, harm to an identifiable person or property. And then judges would have to interpret what that meant. Okay, so those two provisions in the rollback account for 85% of cases in the second half of 2020 where they became bail eligible due to the amendments and a an result bail was actually set. So sometimes we hear about a lot of bail amendments and a lot of charges becoming eligible once again, but there are really two major Bail amendments that actually had an effect on the ground. So that's that's the story. And so here we are. We're studying what happens with the original reforms. What happened with the bail amendments.
0: Wow. Thank you so much um, for you know like that was a very thorough um, retelling of what happened um, with respect to bail reform. Um, uh, And I want so I want to take us back to the period in between. Bail reform initially passing in 2019 and bail reform being amended um, in April of 2020. And I was wondering, uh, you know, I I know that um, bail reform, there was obviously some impetus for um, bail, the initial reforms being rolled back somewhat. And so I was wondering um, if you could just tell us like what some of the critiques were of the initial set of reforms that passed um, you know, who were who the critics and to what extent um, these critiques were legitimate?
1: Sure. So um, there were a number of criticisms, and these, these criticisms actually existed to a degree even when the original forms were debated back in April 2019, and then, and then they intensified at the beginning of 2020 and ultimately fed into what, what we're calling what we're calling the rollback, Well, I should say, the rollback didn't actually act on all of the criticisms I'll enumerate. The, the first, and, and maybe the most um, popular, criticism that the rollback did not act on is that the original reform continued to only allow judges to make pretrial decisions based on someone's likelihood of court attendance. And actually strengthen that. Now there has to be a risk of right. But basically it kept the idea that court attendance, right, people's likelihood of doing in court is what should be a judge to consider pretrial conditions. And so the critics said, well, first of all, nearly every other state in the country doesn't limit these decisions to court attendance. Every other state in the country allows the judges to actually consider people's, likelihood of committing another crime while they're released, or in other words, they're they're, they're dangerous. So why shouldn't New York, while we're changing things, make this change in New York York, like other states? And and then second, the critics just sort of pointed out that realistically what people really care about is safety. And so we're missing this element that, in fact, people care about during the pretrial period, being able to detain people who might be unsafe. Okay, so that's the biggest criticism. That did not get acted on. That did not get acted on for a few reasons. First, a lot of evidence shows that if you use a risk assessment, or risk assessment tool, let's say, to determine someone's likelihood of committing a crime during the pretrial period, these tools will tend to classify people differently based on their race. And they will tend to classify black individuals as higher risk, and white individuals, apart from the actual empirical risk they ultimately prove to have, based on ultimately their likelihood of being reoffended. So that was the first pushback for not doing this. The second pushback for not doing this is that no one really can be, dicted, can be predicted to pose much public safety risk, and the evidence supporting this idea to a degree, only somewhere between 1 and 2 percent of people in New York City released pretrial commit a violent felony during the pretrial period while they're released. So whether you're using a risk assessment or whether you're not using a risk assessment, you're just using judges' impressions of someone's risk, those impressions are inevitably going to be wrong the vast majority of the time. It's impossible to intellectually, through science, through impressions, figure out who this one to two percent will be. So that's the second pushback. So that, so that didn't happen. So dangerousness was not put back in the statute. Another related critique was just around judicial discretion. Um, a lot of prosecutors and judges and others felt, uh, including Mayor de Blasio, for example, felt that judges should be retain discretion in more cases or even in all cases, maybe there should be tight criteria on when judges should incarcerate someone. But this idea that pre-trial detention is off the table in nearly all misdemeanors and nonviolent mis- felonies got a lot of pushback. It seemed to deprive judges of their independence and their discretion. That's the second pushback. Again, that really did not get acted on in the bullback. What did get acted on is what I said, basically, more charges became bail eligible, and, and some of that related to specific objections, like hate crimes. There was no specific hate crime provision. So one of the amendments added certain types of hate crimes that bail eligible. Um, ostensibly serious charges that are not technically a violent felony, like some charges, for example, vehicular homicides, certain manslaughter charges, are actually technically not violent felonies and were not bail eligible in the original reform. So a lot of people felt for something that whose consequences are so serious, it should be bail eligible. So those kinds of charges got added. So that was the main thing that did change. But as I, I mentioned, even though there are a lot of bail amendment provisions, there are really only those two that impacted um, and impacted a lot of people. So I think those are the main objections. And then continuing this year, we've seen kind of another sort of amorphous uh, uh, objection that this idea that a lot of people are just going to automatically be released is something people might become aware of. And it might lead people to commit more crimes because they find out about bail reform and think there will be no consequence to these crimes. So a lot of research shows that people aren't really engaging in these rational calculations of consequences within the criminal justice system. There's really no evidence to suggest that anything about certain people having to be released, that information about this impacts people's decisions on whether or not to engage in criminal behavior. But this was sort of another objection or concern that has continued to this day, and I think we hear a lot, um, for example, from the um, from the police commissioner, certainly he makes an argument about deterrence. He hasn't really been able to support it with evidence to date. But that argument is out there. That if you engage in a certain type of crime, you really will not be detained pre-trial. It might encourage you to engage in that crime. So those are those are the objections. Uh, but as I mentioned, the one that got action on the rollback had to do with just certain specific types of charges that surely felt to some people like they should be eligible some of those changes were made
0: thanks that's um uh, you know that's that, that's very clarifying um and you know it, it really bleeds well into my next question um uh, which is uh, you know I, I know that you have spent the better part of the last couple of years um you know, like researching the effectiveness of bail reform um, and looking at pretrial detention rates. Um, and I guess, like, what does the data tell you about the effectiveness of bail reform, um, given everything that you just mentioned? Um, uh, you know, it feels to me as though there's a disconnect if the standard really is the likelihood of returning to court. Um uh, you know, like, that would, that lends itself to more people um, being released pretrial. If you're really just looking, if if judges are really supposed to just be looking at the likelihood of individuals returning to court, um, yet we are seeing higher pretrial detention rates um, than we did, um, you know, like, I've read some accounts that rates are, um, it, we're projected to have higher rates um, than pre- bail reform in 2019. So I guess, could you speak um, a bit about, you know, your research, what you've seen and what the data is telling us about the effectiveness of bail reform?
1: Yeah. So I I can give a quick run through of what we found. Um, But everything I'm about to say should probably have two giant caveats to it. One would be COVID-19, which led to a lot of changes in how courts operate, arraignments, went to video instead of in person. And some research suggests that in video arraignment, it makes judges more likely to set bail or impose harsher conditions because they can't see the individual before them. So COVID-19 just poses complications that any first-year research can't take into account. And then the second giant caveat is that we've only looked at the first year. And it is common with new reforms for the culture to change slowly. So I'm going to roll through a few negative findings, but it doesn't mean that those negative findings are permanent findings. It means we don't yet have great implementation. So, um, okay, so maybe I should start with where you started on likelihood of court attendance and what you said a moment ago that a few years ago more people should be released. So that would be a provision that Does not seem to be well implemented. And again, the actual requirement in the law is about risk of flight, unlikely to put attendance. People are supposed to get ROR, least without conditions, unless there's a demonstrated risk of flight. That's a new standard in the law. Logically, it should have led to a change, but it didn't. If you focus on the violent felonies, where all options are on the table, including bail, ROR rates for the 2020 year. Didn't change at all from 2019 to 2020, and then if you isolate the um, if, if you isolate the fourth quarter of 20 of 2020, ROR rates were only 27% in violent felony cases. Even though data from the Criminal Justice Agency and other organizations. suggest that most individuals really don't pose much risk of flight in in violent felony cases about, uh, about 85% of people charged with a violent felony who are released, returned for every single court date. So logically, 27% is a low ROR rate. And then if you dig even deeper than that and you use the pretrial release assessment that the city uses and the judges have available to them. And so this is an assessment tool based on past years of data about who is likely to return to court and who's not. And based upon based on this data, on the cases where, according to this tool, individuals should be released on their own recognizance. Probabilistically, they have a 9 and 10 likelihood of hearing in every court date. If it was a violent felony, the individual only got ROR a third of the time in the fourth quarter. So, so that was the first point you made. And yes, the data bears it out, That it looks as though there should be more people released based on this likelihood of court, uh likelihood of court attendance standards. We could take a few other things that haven't happened. It looks as though based on the wording in the statute that people's bail payment rates should have gone up because the law says people's ability to pay bail needs to be taken into account. But we found no change in bail payment rates. So bail payment at arraignment, in other words bail payment before someone without paying set foot at Rikers with seventeen percent on felonies in twenty nineteen and actually declined a couple percentage points fifteen percent in twenty twenty. And then if we look at down the road, does someone ever eventually make bail? Or we isolated this at the ninety day mark. So by the ninety day mark, has someone be able to pay bail and it was right about half a bulk of all people who had to pay bail in twenty nineteen and twenty twenty. So we didn't find any evidence that whatever judges we're considering in 2020 that it was sufficient to make bail more affordable when it was set. And then we found another sort of small nugget. Remember we said that judges were supposed to set partially secured bonds, and then you only have to pay 10% up front. The idea is you have to pay less money immediately to get your your loved one out of jail. Um, We found that judges sort of set the top-line amount on partially secured bonds, higher than on cash bail. In other words, cash bail, let's say, was uh, $1,000. So then with a partially secured bond, that exact same top-line amount, $1,000, will will only have to pay $100. But instead, judges increased that top-line $1,000 two and two-thirds times, like 2.7 times higher. So instead of 1,000, it becomes, right, it becomes 2,700. So now 10% of that becomes $270 instead of 100. So we're kind of increasing an upfront payment a little higher than 10%. That may have contributed to the lack of progress on bail payment. So another thing we saw is just a lot of variability in um, 2020 on the cases that remained eligible for bail and how often they got bail as opposed to other things. So we saw a sharp. Time and bail setting on violent felonies at the beginning beginning of the year and then an increase in the second half of the year and i'll just give you the numbers to get a feel for it so pre-covid that would be the first 10 weeks of 2020 on the violent felony cases that remained eligible for bail judges were setting it 44 percent of the time and the reason they said it less than half the time is that they were using a lot of supervised release, actually. They increased the use of supervised release when that became an option for them. They actually set supervised release 14% of the time in that initial first
0: 10 weeks,
1: whereas in fact, they never set supervised release in 2019 because people weren't eligible for it in 2019 in Mm virtually all-violent felony cases. Okay, so that happened in that initial 10-week period, and then by the fourth quarter, they just changed their practices on the same types of cases, and that 44% became 56%, and it actually peaked at 65% in September. So that goes back to, I guess, the second thing you said in your question, it seems that the judges are still sending a lot of bail. Well, the data doesn't show that they're sending it quite as much as they did in 2019, but it does show that after an initial drop, judges then re-increased on the exact same types of cases. And we did look at different specific charges and control for that, and we found charge by charge this pattern of a drop in bail setting on violent all of all specific charges happened in the beginning, and then it re-increased at the end so that by the end of 2020 we were pretty close to where we were in 2019. And then I just want to add a a final note to that, hand-in-hand hand with this increase in the second half, we found a sharp increase in racial disparities. So in the fourth quarter of 2020, there's a 21% point gap between a black and white dependent likelihood of facing bail if the charge was a So that, So those are all the implementation deficits that we started with. I just want to say that on balance, sometimes we can be a little bit Negative in thinking that bail reform hasn't reduced pre trial detention as we intended. But even with all of these, uh, let's call them implementation deficits, bail reform did reduce bail and it did reduce pre detention. So if we just take a step back and look at the year overall, bail spending went from 8% to 3% on misdemeanors, 37% to 15% on nonviolent felonies, which is a huge drop in nonviolent felony cases and that's a direct product of bail just being outright banned for nearly all nonviolent felony cases And then even on those violent felonies and even allowing what I just said, that the that bail setting increase in the second half of the year, if we just take like a year overall we did see a 64% to 52% drop in violent felony bail setting even though those cases are eligible for bail and the reason or that, that final drop on those violent colonies that judges did take advantage of the options set to realize these. So that's a long you know, way of saying that implementation in year one was, let's call it, middling. And, and we can document the ways it was middling. I went through some of that. But we still, even with this middling implementation that we couldn't prove upon, so less bail setting and so less pretrial detention on all types of charges. Just comparing one whole year to the preceding whole
0: year. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for that reminder, Mike. At BCBF. We always, you know, we appreciate any policy that results in more people being free from incarceration. And so, to that extent, you know, we, you know, we appreciate that bail reform. Resulted in some some people some amount of people not having to spend time behind bars. Um, uh, so I guess I just have one more question for you, and this sort of builds on um, the last part of your response there. Um, so we you know we saw what we saw in, in twenty twenty, and you know oftentimes policy reforms you know there's you know they they you know start off a bit rocky. Um, You know, here we are. We're in June. The summer's coming. Um, I know from my experience as a public defender, um, arrest rates in general tend to, you know, are higher over the summer. Um, the summer is, you know, it's just a, a season where we see higher arrest rates, um, higher pretrial detention rates. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, what can be done to mitigate the trends that you've mm-hmm. observed so far? What can what can what can be done to ensure, or you know, at least to um, you know to to uh, to ensure you know to like get us out of this you know this initial s- stage of rockiness um, when it comes to bail reform.
1: Yeah. So, like as I said, I mean, I mean, this early data and its encouraging elements are really just the first year, and culture change takes a lot of time. So. Could be done um, trying to change the culture, and that can be done sort of through, through a few mechanisms. It can be done right through public research and advocacy. Um, like, we, you know, we hope the report we put out sort of draws attention to some of the elements of bail reform that weren't well implemented in year one and hopefully we can advocate around that for better implementation. And then, two, it can be done not through advocacy but through working with the players. And a good concrete example of that is just judicial training. So, um, some judicial training happens. in at the tail end of 2019, the mayor's office trained judges in separate trainings. They all five boroughs on bail reform and on the new options that supplies the police. even in the cases that continue to be eligible for bail reform, And and we actually saw positive results in that judicial training because, as I indicated, the best results in all of 2020 were early 2020, right after judges received this training. Well, now, later in 2020 and certainly in 2021, you have different judges on the bench. Or the judges who were on the bench at the beginning of 2020, well, they may have forgotten. Or they may be caught up in, you know, narratives without a lot of evidence behind them that people lead to crime. So... Um, it would be kind of a good opportunity to just engage the players and you remind them that there are safe options other than setting bail, that the law really does have this new thing, a new presumption of release. It's not the old days where you just consider someone's likely heard of court attendance. You're really not in specifically following the law supposed to set any control conditions unless there's credible evidence or a risk of flight. just kind of a reminder of these provisions, your ability to pay provisions. Um, so that's sort of, that's within the system, and then the first thing I said is outside the system, sort of drawing attention from the problems, advocating for them, and then sort of remaining optimistic that cultural change takes some time. And this reform produced modest of positive effects in its first year, so hopefully it'll produce greater effects in its second and third years.
0: Great. Well, Mike, this, um, you know, this has been super informative I'm sure our listeners um, will learn a lot from from this podcast. Um, where can um, where can folks find out more information about your work um, and you? Um, should can folks just visit CCI's website? Or
1: yeah, people can just go on the Coordination um, website. It's www um, There there should be a bail reform. Subject page that should lead to our publications on this topic, but in general, there's a search box that shouldn't be too hard to find information.
0: Great. Um, well, thanks for joining us, Mike. Um, uh, and for more information about us at Brooklyn Community Bail Fund, as always, you can visit us online at brooklynbailfund.org. Um, have a great uh, weekend.